Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Chirletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from about 60 miles away from me in Irvine, California, is Christy Grant-Hart. Christy is CEO of Spark Compliance Consulting, and she'll be talking at the 2023 Compliance and Ethics Institute on the tug-of-war between globalization and localization when it comes to compliance programs. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Christy, thanks for joining us for the conference. Thanks for joining here. And let me begin by asking and really addressing this sort of constant tug-of-war between these elements of what should be universal and what should be local. Let's start at the foundational level for compliance and ethics program. The company's values and code of conduct. Should it be one for everyone or is there room to adapt to local conditions? Hi, Adam. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute delight to be back. Um, and to answer this question, yes, yes, mostly. Um, I suppose the values should be the same for everyone. So these are usually based on universal ideas. If you look at the way that values are framed, you usually get words like integrity or customer focus, innovation, inclusion. There really shouldn't be different values anywhere. And your code to the extent possible, absolutely. It should be the same thing. And usually this document is principles based, so that tends to be fine. Um, personally, I have had issues with works councils um, or unions sometimes. Um, if there are, if there's language relating to things like mandatory training descriptions, uh, nepotism issues, uh, or hiring of friends and family, uh, who can speak to the media, what kind of social media representations can be made. Uh, there's some others that we'll talk about in a minute, but there can be some inconsistencies there that you have to negotiate with those kind of uh, representative groups. But generally speaking, as much as you possibly can, your code should be the same everywhere. So beyond the code, you know, looking at other aspects of a compliance and ethics program, are there other parts that absolutely should remain constant? I think that your letters and communications from your CEO and your executive leadership should be the same. So if you need to, you can translate them, you can use subtitles in videos. Those messages should be absolutely consistent because there shouldn't be variations in that tone from the top, especially from that CEO. Um, the other things that should be consistent, I think, include reporting categories and investigations data. So a lot of systems have categories that you can use and choose um, or that your whistleblowers can choose when they are making reports. And if you don't have the same categories everywhere, then you're not gonna be able to do uh, trends investigation. Similarly, if you've got root cause analysis, that process and of reporting those root cause analysis, uh, analyses, I suppose, should be the same. You don't want different categories, different types of process for that. So you really need to be able to aggregate that data. And that means consistency. Uh, another place may be risk assessment methodology. When you're looking at your risk assessments, particularly specific to say bribery or trade sanctions, or if it's part of the compliance risk assessment that feeds up into your enterprise risk potentially, you really need the same assessment so you can make those comparisons successfully. I mean, the last one I would say is my own personal pet peeve, which is ban on facilitation payments. Um, I don't care where you are in the world. It's a bad idea. It's illegal most places. And let's ban that because it's just stupid to try to make that exception. Well, most of the white collar bar will uh, agree with you. So yep. you're, you're not alone on that one. <laughs> so we've talked about places where there needs to be consistency. Uh, what are some places where aspects of the program may be localized safely? 
I mean, I think the place we see it most often is in gifts and hospitality amounts. Um, so obviously you have places where, at, you know, 125 pounds in Britain would be a huge amount of money for uh, to take someone out. And I think that that needs to be seen in a reasonableness light. Now, the, there is obviously a debate about whether we use a reasonableness standard and give examples of that or we use a specific amount. But even if you're using examples, really reasonableness should be pretty well defined so you don't end up with arguments in an investigation. Other places are industry or country specific. So we see, particularly, we work with a lot of pharma clients and there are some places where the government officials can't accept anything or there's very strict limits on lunch and learns, what you're allowed to bring. Things like that, that may be very different in other parts of the world, both from a societal norm and from a regulatory re uh, request or re you know requirements. So I think those are places where it can be very different. Um, I think it's really important. I think as compliance professionals, we sometimes get so hung up on the idea that everything is a bribe if it's not exactly um, what the, the policy specifically says. Um, but I think that business can be done according to societal norms that don't cross ethical lines. And we need to be really conscious of that that we, we don't want anything that can be perceived as a bribe, but we also want to be reasonable in how we look at it too. When it comes to other things outside of gifts and hospitality, I think that there are frequently local law variations in employment. So this is especially true if we're dealing with non-discrimination. And I really find that a lot of compliance officers aren't comfortable and don't know what to do with this for good reason. Um, there are certain parts of the world where a certain number of ethnic minorities or indigenous people need to be hired uh, by law. And anti-discrimination policies are frankly really difficult there if, if allowed at all. So that's something we need to be aware of. Uh, another area is in nepotism and conflicts relating to hiring. Um, frequently you have hiring of family members or supporting their businesses as the norm, especially in extremely small places, even in America, where you have one factory in one town, you frequently get that huge amount of nepotism and trying to get your friends and family hired. Um, and it can be managed with complex disclosures, but there may be complexities and sensitivity. And the last example I'll give is with alcohol use. Um, I you know, lived in London for nine years. We work extensively in Europe. I work in-house and as a consultant all over Europe. And the number of canteens, company-sponsored canteens that have beer or wine in them is really very commonplace. So absolute bans on that when the company is actually providing it as a lunch option is very bizarre. And I think that we mm -hmm. need to be really conscious that some of this localization makes sense from a societal perspective. It's, uh, it is often these the small things, and it's often things that are difficult to get a read on. Uh, I was just traveling internationally. I told the person I was meeting for lunch that, you know, I warned them we have a no gifts policy. I'd be paying for my own. The person said, great, and said they'll pick a reasonably priced restaurant, but that was still $65 a person for lunch, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that was the definition there of reasonable. So in the terms of localization, how much would be too much? I think you want to avoid confusion whenever possible. So that's what we are really trying to do. When we're advising our clients, we always err toward having one standard or policy where it makes sense to do so. Because if you're creating confusion, you should you really should stop. Um, I was doing an internal investigation when I was a an outside counsel at one of the big law firms. And that company had local policies all over the place, but they didn't have good version control and they didn't have date stamps. 
And so what you ended up with was people who would produce, you know, 10 different PDFs within Singapore and they're all different and you, good grief, this is a mess. So if you're going to have localization, you need to have really strong controls so that you can find whatever is uh, applicable at the time. Um, so when localization is too much, in my opinion, you have to have a pretty high bar for localization. So there needs to be a really, really good cause, like legally based, right? Or blatantly obvious that problems could occur. Um, and if you're going down that localization route, I think it's critical that the policies are easy to find, that they are kept up to date, that there's version control, that they're trained on and communicated about, and that they're very clear. And you need to make sure that the folks are able to distinguish where the global policies are and that they're indicators where the local policies are so that you do avoid that problematic issue. And perhaps very importantly, there needs to be follow-up so that if you end up with root cause analysis that says people couldn't find and don't understand the policies, you need to really revisit that. Now, there's always gonna be a risk that someone, whether an employee or a prosecutor may say, why is it okay to do X in one country, but not okay to do it in another? How should the compliance team respond? Well, typically the easiest way to make that not be a problem is to have the strictest law, right? So we've seen many of our clients in response to GDPR or banning facilitation payments simply say, we're gonna go with the strictest reading of this, therefore we don't have to have different website settings everywhere, we don't have to have different subject access request processes, we're just gonna do this thing everywhere. So that's the easy way to do it. If you're going to have this sort of prosecutorial or, or legal angle, um, ultimately every prosecutor that I'm aware of is, is a lawyer, right? The government is prosecuting you. So if you've got a legal argument about why something is legal in one country and not another, and, and this is an important and, the laws aren't extraterritorial like the FCPA, where if you're subject to it, then if the conduct happens anywhere in the world, it's still a problem. If you actually have a local law that is local, your legal counsel should be able to make the argument successfully that wherever we have legality, it is legal, where it isn't, it isn't legal. So I would take that legal angle if I were dealing with a prosecutor. Um, dealing with executives is different. So if you're dealing with executives on something like this, and there is a concern that a prosecutor would be unhappy, I would go back to the company's value and its code. So if there is a concern about this, perhaps if something is technically legal, uh, if the localization effort will cause a conflict with the values, then the value should win every time. So if there isn't the legality problem, there may be a should we do it problem. And that is square in compliance's wheelhouse to say, no, we're going to do the right thing. And that's what we're here for. OK, so one last question as we're talking, you know, a, a lot of times a policy that seems totally fine is fine in most places. But in a given region, it would cause an issue, whether it's against local custom or something else dramatic that you couldn't necessarily foresee. How do you find out from people, honestly, when that's the case and avoid the person who's just saying, oh, you can't do that here because it's inconvenient or they just don't feel like it? I think that, that this is where your network within the company is so critical. If you are lucky enough to have a compliance champions or ambassadors program, especially one that really works, this is definitely where you want to socialize policies before you put them out. Um, I, when I was a chief compliance officer, had allies, basically, whether they were official or not, in every region, uh, based on people who were friendly to compliance, who were believers in compliance. And any major initiative that was going to come out, I tried to run by them first, because 
where you have trusted allies, you can really understand what's going on. Um, if you don't have one yet, you can ask folks like your HR people who they trust um, in the different regions, or you can ask the HR folks themselves. And of course, there's your legal counsel who, if they're regional, will know the law better, or at least point you to someone who does so that you can have some backup within a local area um, so that you can try to find out what will work on the ground and make sure that you're suggesting things that are, are going to work and that are reasonable because then compliance seems reasonable and you are much more likely to have adoption of whatever it is you're trying to roll out at a local level. Well, and making it work on the local level is going to be key in a big global company. Well, Christy, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today and at the 2023 Compliance and Ethics Institute. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.